Hey, this is David Avalon, and welcome to another episode of Breaking the Guard with me and Robert Drysdale. In today's episode, we make a return once again. Unfortunately, travels had brought us to different parts of the world. Uh, I was in Tahiti. Robert went to Europe uh, for the European IBJJF World Championships. And we catch up with each other and talk about the tournament results, which were very exciting for Robert as his student, Felipe Andrew, ended up winning the open class title defeating Keaton Cornelius by triangle armbar and becoming the number one ranked black belt in the IBJJF. And his female student, Luciana Mota, ended up becoming the number one pro belt student. So we talk a little bit about that experience, which goes into coaching. Uh, we talk about Kalaka, who was the original coach for Felipe Andrew and uh, Buchecha. And uh, we, we then get into talking about labels, uh, American Jiu-Jitsu versus 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu versus Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu versus just jiu-jitsu and the importance of it or not really important at all so uh we go into that and we talk also about kasai with cyborg's big win and um, a couple of the other interesting matchups there and just meander a little bit all over the place including financial thermostats so let's go ahead and jump in and hope you guys enjoy the podcast before we get started i'd like to thank one of our sponsors which is DrysdaleBJJOnline.com. DrysdaleBJJOnline.com is Robert's online video portal where you can get access to all sorts of courses from Robert at a very affordable price. Uh, He has courses on his 10 best guard passes, 10 best sweeps, 10 best takedowns. And he recently just added a course of doing leg locks in the gi with none other than uh, Felipe Andrew, who just as I said, won the European uh, titles. Robert has been talking to me about Felipe's uh, leg locks for some time and how he's got a really good straight foot lock. So uh, that's going to definitely be a course, especially if you're a Gi player that you'll want to pay attention to that was just released there. So go ahead. You can visit at DrysdaleBJJOnline.com. Hey guys, what's going on? David Avalon here with Robert Drysdale for another edition of the Breaking the Guard podcast. We're actually on number 25. Oh wow, it's going quick, man. Yeah, yeah. We missed last week. Robert was actually in the Europeans, where now he actually has two of the top competitors of the world. Felipe Pena is the number one. You, Felipe oh, Andrew. Oh, I'm sorry, Felipe Pena. They're both really good, though. They're Felipe. fighting each other, actually. Oh, are they? I just got him a super fight in the UK with Pantheon in oh, May. Nice. They're actually going against each other. Yeah, they're, Felipe Pena beat him the first time. So okay, it's a rematch. rematch. Felipe Andrew, I'm sorry. And he actually yeah. had a really nice win. Uh, triangle, well, triangle armbar, I think it was. Yes, right? triangle armbar. Keenan Cornelius. And then uh, you had Luciana, I don't know. Mota. Mota was the number one female at Purple Belt. Purple right? Belt Division, yeah. So, congratulations, man. As a Thank coach, you. that's a pretty awesome accomplishment. You know, the funny thing is, like, we always want to give ourselves credit, but then there's, like, the asshole part of me that's the total asshole to myself. I can't even be happy for myself. It's like, I didn't do that. You know, and in the case of Luciana, a little bit more because she's been with us for quite some time. And, um, but, like, her husband is her teacher, Diego. Yep. I help a lot, you know, but he's her real coach. And then with Felipe, that's all Cavaca. I really make sure to give Cavaca credit, which is Quite impressive if you think about it because the number one in the ranking now, Jeff ranking, is Felipe, mm-hmm. right? And number two is Bushesha. They're both Kavaka students. 
Oh. That's never been done before. I don't that's never been done before. Number one and two in the world have the same coach. Yeah. You know, so he may not Kavak doesn't always get the recognition as a good coach, but he really is an outstanding coach. Is that a coincidence, right? When you have the top two guys in the world, Maybe. that means there's a, that to me that means he has a good formula, right? Yes. Got a good system, and, and he's able to crank out top athletes. You know what? It's funny. Like we talked about this a million times, but like it's the the formula to be a good coach, and it's there's so many different ingredients. I think you have to have an eye for it because he found Felipe as a blue belt, he found Bushesh as a white belt. You know, like you, and I think I have an eye for it, but like it's very difficult to bring him up through the ranks. I actually think that the technical side is easier. Even though everyone thinks that's all the work, the technical side, to my opinion, is a lot easier. It's the social side. It's putting up with people's shit that I don't have the patience for. <laughs> like, Kavaka does it really well, and it's not, he knows when to put the hammer down. Like, that's what a good coach does. I'm not, you're not supposed to put up with it. You know when to put the hammer down with people, and that's a skill. And that's what makes it work. Like, the coach is supposed to be the boss, and, like, this is what you're going to do today, and this is how it's going to work. Because at the end of the day, your athlete has to trust you. If he doesn't trust you, you lost him. Yeah, and then and it's actually detrimental to every, that the whole relationship stops working. For sure, you know that's one of those things that when the athlete trusts you, they don't necessarily question every judgment you make, and they or the, the instruction that you teach, the strategy you give. I know we've both seen it where you have a very promising guy, he rises up really fast, ego grows faster yeah. than the humility, and then suddenly he starts questioning like, oh, I don't think I should do that. I should do this instead. Yeah. I need an extra coach. I need this or that, and then. At that point, it's like, well, I can't coach you anymore because you... You don't trust me. You don't trust me. And that's what I tell my guys. Like, if you don't trust my instruction or the instruction of your coach, you got to find a new coach. Yeah. Because it's over. Like, and, and the funny thing is the better fighters get, the more it's to their own detriment because the more they feel like they know better. And all of a sudden, they're questioning everything. And then the more they do that, the more it's detrimental to their career because they were better off when the coach was giving him if you find a good coach he gives it a good guidelines like that's a winning recipe man you don't change that yeah you know and i think that's so uh, um that's such an underrated aspect of the coaching game like people don't realize that but um i mean going back to kavaka he does that really well he's got a lot of good guys a lot of good guys came out of his camp like if you look like a lot of big names um and um what else yeah europeans was fantastic man it was a great event like no, there, there was happy. a good amount of buzz about that, that, that show. Yeah. I know Mike Mutsumessi and the, the big guy, Saif, Saif. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. That was huge. They couldn't pick. I feel for Mikey because, man, like, <laughs> I know whenever I done absolutes, they always threw me the heavyweight. But at least I'm, you know, we were talking about you're this before. A, you're a big guy. You're not yeah, a small guy. 200 pounds, more or less. So, like, I can yeah. still, I scale up pretty well. Yeah. But when you're, like, Mikey's size, like, he's, like, what, 130 or something like that? Not even, man. Yeah. yeah. And they put him, not like just a heavyweight. An enormous heavyweight, you know? Like, yeah, but here's the thing, though. The bracket, really, like, people give like, IBJF shit, but it's really is a computer. It's a software. Yeah. It used to be, it used to be handpicked. And this is what used to happen. Like, so, I don't know if you know this or not, but like, they, the day before the Open, oh, yeah. the head coaches would get together, the main teams, right? The ones, every coach could participate, but if you didn't have a guy who had a shot, you normally didn't show up, right? There's no other people that had someone, one or two competitors that had a good shot. And there was, it was like a yelling contest. And whoever could yell the loudest would get like this top seat, basically. But it was loosely based off accomplishments. And Fabio Grigel always won because he had the deepest voice. That's my theory. <laughs> Make shit count, believe it or not. And then, you know, he would always win these arguments. So his guys always had the best seeds. And like Andre would leave the room pissed off. I'll be like, 
okay, you know, it is what it is. And yeah, the other, half the other guys would be pissed off too, but no one was perfectly happy. So IBJF finally developed a system that you get points per tournament that you win, right? And every year that goes by, the year's previous tournament is, they're worth less and less, right? So you have like an internal ranking and then the software like spits out the bracket. So there's no more argument. Yeah, well now that there's a, they, they're always pushing, at least I see Flow Grappling always putting the rankings up on social media. Yeah. So now you can make seedings easy because they're already yeah. there. Yeah. I mean, you already know, okay, one nine or, or whatnot. So, but everyone would think that Mikey and the big guy was like done on purpose because he was the lightest guy in the open and yeah. he went against the heaviest in the first fight, you know, but it really was a coincidence. But uh, it definitely made for an entertaining match. Yeah. And then him and Ali went at it, which that is was great, man. great match. And then uh, uh, Saif ended up beating Ali later on in the heavyweight division. I didn't see that, yeah. but that sounds right. I know Keenan beat um, uh, Ali. He had this weird grip. He had, this, he had uh, uh, Ali's foot wrapped in the lapel for the entire match. Like I'm still trying to understand. You can see that he was stopping Ali from doing what he wanted to do, but it was this weird thing where he used his own lapel. To control Ali's leg, and he was just like manipulating Ali around with the lapel. It was the weirdest thing, man. And but he had a really good match with Ali. And I'm forgetting who else. Gaudio lost to Felipe in the open, and then it was Cornelius and uh, and Felipe in the final. Well, it's a good showing also for Keenan. He's uh, yeah. I don't think he's competed in one of these for a while, if I'm not mistaken. I think the last time he competed IBJJF would have been. I can't keep up. Yeah, you're right. He's been he's been absent from. from I know he's he's got a lot of stuff going on, yeah. and you know he's got his school and all that, and still able to show up with the top dogs. A hundred percent. I think he's an outstanding, and he's such a gentleman too. Like I really like him because, you know, he has he has proven that you don't have to be trash talking, insulting your opponents, and diminishing people's work to be successful, financially successful. He does really well with his. Uh, online sales, he does really well. I mean, his academy's probably is doing well by now, you know, I'm assuming. Uh, he's a very smart guy, very business oriented, but he's also a really nice guy. Yeah. You know, it's totally possible, people. You don't have to be an asshole to make money, you know? Um, and I admire that because, you know, win or lose, he does have a very uh, good attitude about it, you know? Um, like, yeah, I don't, I don't see a bad bone in his body. He's just like a very shrewd businessman. I think he rubs people the wrong way. A lot of times because he can like the AJJ thing was a little polemical, you know. Well, who's little, it? I think Draculino just posted that thing. I saw that, uh, yeah. which I guess was tagging him yeah. and also I guess Tenth Planet Jiu Jitsu. Yeah. Uh, I mean, people want to. I mean, we talked about it before. I thought it was just funny, you know, because if you're growing up learning Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and then you're gonna label as American Jiu Jitsu. Uh, I mean, I guess everybody can make a label. Yeah. But, it, then, it, but then you have the 10th Planet guys, which again, it, they do, to their credit, have a system. Yeah. They, and they're very coordinated with, okay, they had everything systematized even to the warm-ups and all that that they, that they teach. So I get it, you know, they wanna label their own thing and it's a no-gi art and they have a particular way of playing, which is kind of different than yeah. what most people do. All right, you call it 10 Planet Jiu-Jitsu. But the thing is, um, I think that you know everyone wants to, they want to build their own brand. That's what we're talking about, yeah. ultimately. And Keenan comes across as the guy who represents American Jiu-Jitsu, if, you know, if he portrays himself that way. Uh, I, I, I still I think that there, I mean, you can focus on the differences. We practice, you know, we've competed against each other, we've competed in the same rule sets, yeah. but we're different. Yeah. Can we call it David Jiu-Jitsu and Robert Jiu-Jitsu? I mean, I suppose we could. 
But there are too many similarities to warrant. To me, there are way too many similarities. People focus on the differences. Shunji Ribeiro did it best. He had one that was called JJJ. January Jiu-Jitsu. All the fighters that were born in January, which I thought was pretty funny. He was like, you might as well, you know, why, why, why American, why Brazilian, why not January? It's a perfectly valid question, you know, because, you know, you don't, what de- determines your game plan, um, your, your style has nothing to do with what country you were born into. You know, like the country does not play a role. How good you are at Jiu-Jitsu doesn't, you know, believe it or not, lo and behold, has nothing to do with where you were born. It has to do with how much you train. Yeah, you know? I don't think having the labels necessarily, like, creates rifts unless... For example, because I, I don't think if you went to the 10th Planet guys and go, do you guys practice Jiu-Jitsu? And they go, no, we do 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu. I'm like, it's like a, you know, they, I, I think they'll say, yeah, we do Jiu-Jitsu. You know, but we, our, our brand, or maybe you could yeah. say it's like styles within the Jiu-Jitsu class. And I think that's probably a better description. Like, and, so you have Jiu-Jitsu and then if you have guys who do 10th Planet, there's a particular way that they play. Yeah. I've rolled with a bunch of the 10th Planet guys, and they all have a, a style. Yeah, they have their unique style. And then you, versus if you go with guys who are like more like submission wrestler based, all yeah. Nogi also they have a, a different style. And then you go people come up from the Gracie Jiu Jitsu school. That's a and, that's and, a different look too, you know. So, but they're all Jiu Jitsu. So I do I do agree point, with yeah. Jacqueline and that's a, yeah, they're all Jiu Jitsu, you know. But I don't think you, you can't label it because I understand the value. Like obviously. By branding as Ten Plant Jiu Jitsu, they've become very successful that way. At least Eddie Bravo has. Yeah. You know, if he would have just flown a BJJ banner or, or followed that, he probably wouldn't have as much success. Especially since his uh, school has like a like a familiar following, almost like cult like, if you would say, yeah. but not not in a negative way. But they identify like that. You know what I mean? So it gives them a little uniqueness, which makes it easier. Yeah, it's to... it's, it's it's something that appeals to like a niche audience because like oh we're di- we're doing something different. We're really not doing jujitsu. We're doing you know this kind of jujitsu, whatever. And to me, once again, we're focusing on the differences, and there are some differences. But what about all the similarities? That's like ninety nine point nine percent of the similarities that go fly under the radar because we just take them for granted. But there's similarities. Yeah. You know, no one likes to be inside a triangle. That's a similarity. Right? We don't talk about the similarities. We always talk about, there's millions of little things that we do that are identical. Things, places we want to be, places we don't want to be. But those, we just take them for granted. So we're focused on, oh, but we do more of this or less, more of that. And that's always been the case, though. That's not new. You can go back to Jiu-Jitsu in the 1980s, and every school had their own like little, oh, these guys are really good at footlocks. These guys are really good at closed guard. These guys are really good at stand-up. And that's true for every school on the planet. So if you are going to put things in the categories, then every school should have their own Name in fact, every practitioner at that because even though we practice the same art, like I said, we compete in the same tournaments, our games are different. So again, we're going to call it David Jiu-Jitsu and Robert Jiu-Jitsu. And once we start doing that, it's like, what, where are we getting with this? I, I'm of the opinion that once you change the rules and you practice a different rule set, right, long enough so you can't even compete with each other anymore, then you have a different martial art, right? Judo Jiu-Jitsu. The judokas didn't want to compete too long on the ground. The jiu-jitsu guys didn't want to stand up with the judokas. Okay, we agree to call judo judo and jiu-jitsu jiu-jitsu. There's a split. I don't see that yet. I kind of see that a little bit with submission only. But as long as they call it jiu-jitsu, I don't think it's ever going to be far enough to warrant anything that is just like a variant of jiu-jitsu. It's not. It's just slightly different. Yeah, I think the one of the probably the bigger reasons that people want to brand styles is the same way how you call your school your own name, right? Because um, you want to show like everybody's doing jujitsu, but I have my flair in it, and I think my formula is the best formula, right? Because at at some point, if you produce a world champion, and then you just say, "Oh, where did he come from? He comes from jujitsu," 
then the ego part was like, well, I didn't get credit for, you know, creating the student and the particular style that we have. That's, yeah. Has the, that's the reason why he was successful because yeah. everybody's jujitsu, but we have a particular twist on it that made it a little bit more effective. You know, yeah. He's got better stamina. He's got better techniques that we focused on. That's why, you know, we kind of brand it in that sense, you know, because you have like Zen, Jiu-Jitsu, and there's, you know, Czech Mad, and there's all these yeah. other ones. And you were, we were just talking about um, Kavaka, and how he's produced these two guys. But if his name isn't attached to it, we don't know why they were successful. Like, we yeah. watch them, but like, we know, oh, Kavaka is the guy who made Nupuchecha and Felipe Andrew. Okay, what's Kavaka doing? Yeah. Oh, he has this particular thing that he focused on. Okay, so now we can benefit, you know. So I, I feel like... There is benefit to having the different style names, but ultimately we all, well, at least in the jiu-jitsu world, we're all doing jiu-jitsu yeah. one way or another, but we just use labels yeah. to distinguish between. You, you know, I, when I, the more I think about this conversation, I think we get lo- we, we people get lost, and I think we just do the same thing. We're like in these little, tiny little things. It's like, I think we're, I, I don't know. To me, they, they they're not really, they're not huge different. There's just so. Anyone who doesn't do jiu-jitsu and is listening to us right now, they think we're fucking crazy. That's pretty <laughs> much what they're thinking. Like, you have to be a jiu-jitsu nerd to kind of get where we're going with this. Uh, I think that what may happen is, you know, I think that the, the people just might drop the B in BJJ. Or I don't think the AJJ is going to last. I think there's this thing Keenan does. And I think some school might follow suit. But, like, at the end of the day, they're competing in the same tournaments. It's the same shit. Like, oh, he came up with some stuff. Yeah, everyone comes up with stuff. That's the other thing. Everyone thinks that they created something that is unique and revolutionary like yeah but everyone does that everyone's doing that all the time like you're creating you got details of the kimura no one ever taught you true or false yeah that you learned right how'd you learn them practice practice practice, failure like i do the same like i got a little guillotine stuff that i do that no one ever taught me and i I feel that's true for everyone you know and then you know of course people like keenan they're an exception to that you know people like uh what's his name the um, eddie cummings like the guy with the leg lock system like he I'm assuming that no one ever taught him. You have to learn the hard way. And he does things that are very particular in his own style. But I think we, I'm more of the opinion we should celebrate the similarities and not focus on the differences. That's how people are with everything. You ever notice that? It's like everything, religion, politics, anything that's contentious. People have this like laser-like focus on the differences. And the similarities, you know, sometimes are identical. They're completely overlooked. You know, to me, I, I think yeah. that's interesting. It is. And, um, well... We continue on with competitions. We still have another tournament we haven't talked about, which is Kasai. Kasai was, uh, when was it? This, this weekend, Saturday? Uh, yes, it was this past Saturday. Yeah. So, uh, big winner is Cyborg, which was, uh, was man, he's... Uh, Pretty impressive. Iron Man of Jiu-Jitsu, you know, because I think he's... He's getting better, it seems like. Yeah, I think he's, what, 30? He's my age, I he's think. Yeah, 38, 38, maybe 39 yeah. now. And he's getting better as he gets older because I remember Cyborg when he, because we're, we're the same age, yeah. we're the same generation, we've competed in the same tournaments. Um, he was always good, but I think he's getting better as he gets older. It's like this weird thing where he's more dominant now than he was 10 years ago. Because 10 years ago he was good, yeah. but he's, I, I think he's won like every major Nogi competition he's been in other than the ADCC, the last ADCC, like, but everything else he's won. And they- I wonder how that would translate. What other weight class I've done do that? Cabrinha was very successful, even. But Cabrinha's always good. Like, I think Cabrinha was consistent with his success. Why Cyborg, I actually think he's getting better. Like, he's done, he's won more in the last three years than he did in the previous, maybe, maybe not. 
they had some big titles too. But it's very unusual, man. It's very hard to do. You know, you know For this sure. as well as yeah, I yeah, do, yeah, man. The, it's the, the hurt in the body. And he's a heavyweight too, so there's a yeah. lot of... Uh, I was just trying to think, maybe because he's a heavyweight, he's able to last longer. Because, you know, they say strength is the last thing that goes as you get older. If anything, you, you argue know, you're, you're getting stronger. But uh, your speed definitely goes... You know, but as a heavyweight, speed maybe not as important. But I don't know. If you see him scramble, he moves pretty. pretty he good. moves well, and yeah. then you know the the injury factor and like staying healthy. So certainly impressive. He won. Uh, he beat the the rematch with Nick Rodriguez. Yeah. I didn't see it, but from my I, understanding, I it, it was a decision. Yeah, it was a decision. It was one of those close ones. Another coin toss. So like, yeah. I guess he got heads the first. <laughs> <laughs> Tails this time, you know. It means it's close. It's it's a, it's a close matchup. Um, who else? That yeah. uh, kid, Kyle Bone, Bone, Bone. Bone he yeah. def- he tapped Jerome Gabriel. I was surprised. I thought Jerome was going to beat him, so that was a big win. Yeah. Jerome was complaining about something. I saw the highlight. Yeah. I'm not sure what he was complaining. No, yeah, like, that was a clean leg. Did lock. he think that leg lock that uh, heel hooks were illegal? Maybe. No. Like, what, I, they, what they were saying, someone because I saw the post. I'm like, man, this looks like a clean heel hook. There's nothing wrong there. He just uh, half guard. Through he the was head. complaining about something. I don't but know. He, why. I guess someone else was saying that uh, Joao's sh- foot got stuck in his shorts. At oh, one point. okay. But it was like 10 seconds ago. And then like he started complaining about it after he got healed. It's a weird timing. No, no, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't know the details, but like yeah. it doesn't seem like it looked like legit. Yeah. Um, who else? Like, I mean, we, we talked about him before, but like he's been doing a lot better now, Kyle. Like, no, he's, I, I, he's, he's, yeah. he's very good. I, I saw him first time at the Quintet. With, yeah. uh, he fought Felipe, actually. Yeah. And then they went back and forth with footlocks. Um, but uh, it was like a no point system, yeah. So there's no victor. They were both. Yeah, they both uh, get both get wiped out. Yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, he's, he's definitely gone up a lot. Who else? Uh, Hulk was in there. Hulk is always in there. He has some wars. I think he had a war with Cyborg. Yeah, Cyborg got a good like suplex on him. Yes, another or wrestling match. Yeah. Reinforces what we always talk about: the yeah. importance of wrestling in jujitsu. Uh, who else? I mean, and that looked like a stack. Ludo, he got heel hooked by, by Nick, I believe. Was it Nick? I think it was. It was Nick. Nick. That's right. I saw that. All right. I didn't watch the show. I just like I follow stuff on Instagram, and that's how you keep. There's too many shows, but it's hard to keep up. Well, that's a good thing, right? Like oh, 100 percent. I remember, like back in the 2000s, there was no like professional venues really. Like you yeah. had like super fights that were paying like 60 man absolute, 500 bucks. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> you get to fly across the country, get a hotel, and you're yeah. breaking even, you know, to compete. Oh, so. and. You know, I mean, MMA, it's still like that a lot of times. By the time you're done paying everything, oh, you're actually you're in the yeah. hole a couple thousand dollars. Yeah. You know, you're paying a fight. But it's getting better, man. Like, look at the prizes. Like, this is something that is really, I feel that, you know, I think a lot of competitors take it for granted. Like, they don't realize how lucky they are in the terms of, even though the sport, a lot more people in the sport, it's, you can actually make a decent living just fighting. Yeah, right now you can't. Nah, you know? it's, I mean, you have to be like a top-tier guy. Like, you can't just be an average Joe. But that even if you were the best in the world, there was no such thing as making a living from just fighting because ADCC was every two years. Yeah. Even if you won, it still didn't mean a lot. Yeah, as a, as a, as a pure grappler, you would really have to be hustling too. No, you were teaching seminars and running a Seminars school. and then, you That's... know, selling merch and doing a lot of stuff. And then usually you have, excuse me, you have a school and you're teaching private lessons and a lot of yeah. things. Now, like, like you're saying... This is a competitor. You're doing sponsorships and you know seminars and stuff like that. You can make a pretty good living, you know. Just uh, especially as somebody who doesn't have a formal education, whether you just yeah. a pure athlete, and you know, 
uh, as some of the top guys, apparently they're making silly money. You know? Yeah, but here's the thing, though. Like, they fall into that trap, too, that every professional athlete falls into. Because I won't say it's easy money, because fighting is not easy. But it's not the kind of hard that a businessman learns, you know, or a kind of like a business kind of hard. Because you, you fight, which is fun. You go to jiu-jitsu, you win, you get a big check, right? And it's like a basketball player, a football player, same thing. And then they retire, and then what happens? You know the statistics, right? Yeah, it's yeah. something like 80% bankrupt right yeah, after retirement. Like a same thing. Eggs, same thing, because you never learn how to make money. You never learn how to manage the money. You never learn how to invest the money. So that like that artificial injection into your account one day is going to go away. And just because you saved up a few million doesn't mean you're going to be able to hold on to it. Because if you have a few million in your account, chances are you don't live in an apartment. Yeah. Chances are you don't drive like, you know, a 94 Honda Civic. You know, chances are, you know, you're living above your means and you don't have a source of income other than your savings. And that's not going to last. Yeah. You know, so it, it's the same. It's the, the, the problem that every professional athlete bumps into sooner or later in their career. Like, can you turn that corner once you retire? You know, so in a way for, for even though like we, we missed that, we never got a big, big paycheck. The 80s, he was the only thing paying back in the day, right? Yeah. It was every two years. Uh, but at the same time, because we, you ran a school, I run a school, like it teaches you something. Yeah. Like you learn skills along the way at least. Yeah, so I after, feel like yeah. if I never made a dime from, you know, competition, it's fine because I can still make a living running a business because I have like a basic understanding of how this works. Whereas a lot of these guys will not have that when they retire. They're going to be white belts at life by the time those checks start, stop coming in. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a lesson to anybody really. Like, uh, I mean, this phenomenon, they have it with lottery winners also. Mm. It actually, with lottery winners, they end up worse than, when they, than when they won. And it's um, the analog that was given to me was analogy, right? Was a financial thermostat, right? Like everybody essentially, depending on your background, has a number in your head or like a status of living that you're comfortable with, right? So for some people, maybe that's 40K, 60K, 100K, whatever it is. Infinite. Yeah, right? But whatever that is, that's where you're, you feel comfortable being at. Yeah. So when you get, like you said, an artificial injection, like a lotto, and then from being having like $10,000 in the bank, now you have like $500 million, It's like you have more money than you're comfortable being having or just used to having. So what do you do? You start spending money like crazy. You give money to family. You give it to friends. You make silly business decisions or investments, and yeah, because you start no, burning yeah. through that money yeah. fast to get you back to where you were when you started. And then sometimes you end up getting lower than you started. Because now you have debt. You have debt, yeah. yeah. And then now you have a huge mess, and you've probably made enemies everywhere and burned people down. You know the problem? And I've, I've yeah. had this, and um, my brother's uh, wife, her family had won a lotto and made a lot of money off it, and... They ended up sharing money with the family, and then a lot of broken bridges, from my own understanding, happened, and now everybody's worse off for winning this big jackpot. It's just because people don't have, like you said, they don't prepare, because having that much money is a, a responsibility, you know, and you have to learn how to handle it. But like they don't teach you that in school, yeah. you know. So if you don't come from money and you be giving a lot of money. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's it, a problem. It, you know, it, like, actually, it is. Yeah. You're right because they don't know. Like like we were talking, they don't know how to manage it. No. You know, so they think, oh, I got millions of dollars, so like I'm I'm good. I'm going to invest this and that. But like oh, even if you do make investments, it doesn't mean they're going to be good investments. Right. And then you have all the taxes you got to pay on that investments. But right. now your 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 standard of living goes up significantly, yeah. right? Especially if you're not surrounded by the right people. If you have to be surrounded by a bunch of morons that. And a family turned sometimes they're trying to be really, really dumb people. Yeah. And they just want a piece <laughs> of the pie because they think they deserve it. Because, like, hey, I helped you pay your mortgage that one time. Give me a million dollars, you know? Yeah. So I imagine, man, it would be very disruptive to a family. I think that, you know, there's like that classic story of the old grandpa that's dying and everyone's fighting over his money and it turns every son against. Everyone. There's a movie out about this. Ah, Knives Out. Have you seen it? Oh, no. oh, it's great, man. It's exactly what we're talking about, right? Knives out. It's, it's, it's in, it might be in the theater still. And it's a classic story, but it really is, you know, I think it's a, what a way to destroy a family, do I imagine. Yeah. You know, I don't, I've never had that problem. And don't get me wrong, if someone in my family won a lottery, I'd probably ask them for money too. I'd probably <laughs> do the exact same thing. But, <laughs> uh, you know, but I, I think it would cause, it would destroy the family a lot of times. You know, if you, if you don't have like a very, like tightly knit group of people and everyone's reasonable and which isn't it's hard to find like everyone in the family's reasonable that never happens right no. so there'd be a lot of conflict that would probably distance you know you, you would become very isolated i think as a result i always say that money is just the physical manifestation of power yeah. right and you know power corrupts and, and it also attracts things right yeah. so like you have that much power you know what to do with it there's going to be people that are going to be attracted to it. And then they're not always going to be good people. And take advantage of you, you know, make bad deals and all sorts of stuff. So you got to really be careful. That's why it's smart. Like when people go out and I see people, they come like in masks. So they, they, when they're going to announce the winners or whatnot, and yeah. they make sure they don't reveal their identity. Because, yeah, I mean, that, that could... A lot of people just don't understand it. You know, like family members are like, yeah. oh, why didn't you give me all this money? Like, you know, at the end of the day, it's not going to solve the problems that you have, you know? No. Like if you have problems in your life, Having artificial money is not going to fix it, right? It's you. You might have a temporary relief, but then you're going to burn through that money again. Same thing, the financial thermostat. You know, you're going to regulate eventually, and it works the other way too. Whereas if you you have a catastrophe or something bad happens and you go below where you're comfortable at, what happens? You take a second job, you know, your third job, whatever, and you build yourself back up and you level out, right? So like the trick for people who make those status jumps is they have to be able to move that thermostat up. And how you do that? That's a whole other <laughs> yeah, but, question. But, but it, it's you, similar to like competing as well. Yeah, like skill. when you're a skill, when you're like a blue belt or something like that, you might have this mental image that you are a blue belt, right? So that you can't beat people above you, or you can't beat particular people because you have this limitation in your head. Mm-hmm. I know when I first joined the wrestling team, I came from being like computer playing nerd type. Overweight, I was like, what, ninth grade, 200 pounds, really over, out of shape. And I guess I had this mental image, I couldn't run well at all. Because every practice, uh, we would have to start off with a three-mile Indian run. And I couldn't run three miles continuously, let alone one mile continuously. Like, I would end up doing, like, the first half mile and then fall off and then have to walk and then run and walk and run. And I remember like two months in, I was still struggling, even though I could do the wrestling practice fine. Yeah. But the run, I was getting like smashed. And finally, like, but I would get better every time. I'd get a little yeah. further before I had to stop. And then finally, one day, 
I completed the three miles without stopping. And then never again did I ever have to walk. And I could be like, rather, I could be so out of shape, and I've done it, like completely out of shape, and I could run 10 miles without stopping. Yeah. Right? It's not like suddenly I achieved like a video game, unlocked maximum endurance. Yeah. It's just a mental thing, right? You yeah. have a barrier, you know? So if I would have never broken through that barrier the hard way, you know, I would have never been a good athlete, let alone yeah, be able yeah. to run. But it's like one of those things that you have to constantly push against it. You know, so I think the more, the harder you have to work to earn something or uh, to develop that skill, the more likely you're going to break a threshold, you know, that you can yeah. always surpass. So I think when you, when you talk about business, like what, what would be the better path? Like I have to work my way through to make my first million or I have a rich uncle that just drops a million on my lap. You know? Exactly. I'd rather be the guy that grinds through it because I know how to do it. Everyone and, thinks yeah. I'm crazy when I say that, man. Yeah. Like, I have this conversation with people. Like, I'm really happy I wasn't born rich. And it was like, oh, no, no. Like, no, man. Like, I want to pay the iron price because I actually appreciate the lessons that come with it. You got the rich uncle, man. You're like, what exactly are you learning? You get the connections. Like, don't get me wrong. I like the connections. To me, that would be the valuable part of having a rich uncle. Yeah. I would like to know the people that he knows, right? Like I like you wanna there's a saying in in, in, in Brazil, maybe it exists here too. Like if you want to learn how to fly, you don't hang out with turtles. Yeah. You gotta hang out with eagles, right? Like and I see I always looked at jujitsu that way and like I who are the best people? I gotta hang out with those people if I want to be like them, right? And in business it's the same. Um but like if you if you get handed everything, like not only do you not learn anything, you're the one that ends up like the guy who wins the lottery ends up broke at the end because you don't know how to manage the money. Yeah, if you if you're born into money or born into power, it's I think it's definitely more tricky to get those motivations right. You know, oh, like yeah. obviously it's possible, and there's many successful people that have even more successful children. Yeah. But it, it's a different parental challenge, right? Because you have to be able to create challenges where there might not necessarily be, right? Yeah. Like you might not need the kid to do the the lawn because you have gardeners, right? But you might make them do it anyways, just to give them a sense of duty and like chores. One hundred percent. That's called good parenting, in my right. opinion. So like, so like you have to, but you have to be a good parent, right? Yeah. And all because you're a very successful in business doesn't mean that you're a good parent either, right? It might be that you're just really good at business, <laughs> and then yeah. you had a family with kids, but you're focused on your business, and then you, the kids go wayside, you know. So it's it, it's like if you're being a coach, it's kind of like being a parent in some ways, but. I actually strongly believe that a tough love is real love. If you want someone to truly learn something, you want to make them grind for it. You know, you don't want to give them the easy route. Yeah. You know, same thing with your kids. Like my kids, I'm no perfect parent, but like I make them earn stuff. Like I don't, I don't like buying them stuff just because like they feel they deserve it. Like they know that they they have their chores and they help and like even like little stuff. Like I don't carry their bags for them. Everyone's like, oh, bro. Like, some people might even think that I'm kind of mean sometimes. And it's not that. It's just like I want them to learn to take care of themselves. Like if they spill something, I don't clean it for them. I'll make them do their best. And like now they're old enough they could actually clean up after themselves. But when they were little, I'd make them clean it. And they was, it was a horrible job. But it wasn't so much about keeping it clean. It was more about them understanding that that was their problem. Yeah, They have to have the responsibility. Like I remember like they would make a mess in the car. Like they'd spill chips in the car and they're like two, three years old. I'll make them clean it. Like they didn't do a good job, but it's a lesson. That's what yeah. you're after, right? And I think that's what, you know, a lot of people miss out is that they make it so easy on their students, so easy on their kids and they think they're helping. It's just, that's like the worst thing you can do for, for, for someone is just like, you know, give them the short route. Yeah. 
Mm. We, uh, um, I think, the ultimately, uh, the goal of a leader is to breed tough, tough people around them. Like your either your children or your students or your employees, you want to make them tough. You got to make them earn it. And I think at the end of the day, people appreciate that. They may hate you at the time for making them do the extra work, but I think in the long run, they will appreciate. It. I'll give an example. My mother, you may or may not know this, she owned a language school in Brazil, right? Mm. So they taught English, Spanish. Italian, German, and French. Mm. I grew up inside that school. I was there every day. I ended up learning Spanish just because it was, you very know, similar. it was very similar. It was easy. But I did some German, but I didn't really learn it. And, but I, to this day, I'm kind of upset at my mom for not making me study. Like, mom, why didn't you force me? Like, I was there every day. Oh, you just wanted to play. I'm like, no. You know, you should have met, set me down and, like, made me study German for an hour a day every day. I wish she had done that. You know, I think at the end, when you're harder on people, at, maybe not at the moment, but later in life, they'll appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, if I look back at my first training sessions in wrestling, I can, <laughs> I hated everything that we were yeah. doing. I hated those runs. They were miserable. Having to do the pull-ups was embarrassing because it was only three sets of 15. I couldn't get like three, you know? Yeah. So it's awful. And then I remember there was one point, <laughs> I'll never forget this, uh, we got in because we'd do our Indian runs, sprints, pull-ups, and then we'd get inside the mats and then start the wrestling practice. Yeah. And my legs were just burning, you know. And I go, Coach, can I get a break, please? Like, my legs are really hurting. And then he just stepped down looked at me and goes, you know why your legs are hurting, David? Because you never done a hard day's work in your life. Right? <laughs> and he just went on a, a tire and he goes, but go ahead, sit out for a little bit until your legs feel better, buddy. And then I was like, Sigh. I feel like crap. <laughs> but you, you probably hated him at the time, but now you're like, oh, oh it's man. hilarious now when I look back at it. Yeah. But it's like it's what I need to hear. You know, like a good coach knows like when to, I guess, use negative reinforcement in the yeah. way because I was like a negative, like a yeah. sarcastic kind of coaching, but it worked because it got my ego. I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm not a little bitch. I'm like, okay. Yeah. I'll get up and do this thing, you know? But, but you know, the thing is, like, not everyone can take it. Like, I feel like I can take it like a champ. Like, if someone says something that I don't like to hear, but it's true, I, like, it's a bitter pill to swallow, yeah. but, like, I'll get over it. Like, I'm like, you know what, at the end, it doesn't take me that long, I'll go, you know what, that's a good friend right there. Yeah. He's telling me what I need to hear, right? But, like, I've been that with some people. Man, they get butt hurt, and they can't deal with it. They just can't stand criticism. You know, and it's hard to coach. So I, as a business owner, you balance these things because you want to make them hardcore. Yeah. You want to get the best out of them, right? The very best version of your student. And that's what they want in theory. But in practice, the execution is not always easy because they're very soft. Yeah. And if you push them too hard, you'll lose a student. Now, you got to pay rent. So balancing these things out is very difficult. But, you know, it's, it's doable. Like there is, I think that, that, that ultimately a good coach is a good psychologist. Yeah. And then once you, the better you get at it, the more you're able to identify your students and what, which, what's his profile, like what's his background, like who is this person, and you know how to get the best out of them without pushing them away. Yeah, you, um, you, you have to be careful of what you're, what you're talking about, breaking somebody, right? Like we don't necessarily want to break somebody. We want to get them really close. Yeah. You know, but I feel like if you broke somebody, now they, they're gone. They don't come back. You know, they're... You want to get them like where they're about to break, and then you can snap but them. That's back a in. skill, man. It, it is a skill because the closer you get them to breaking, that means you're you're also breaking through a lot of garbage in their head and limitations yeah. that they have. And if they're able to snap back, now they've gained a viable life. And lesson. now you, you know what those limits are too. Like you're able to to gauge like how far you can push them. I'll give an example. We have a comp class at the gym now, 
and it's it's you know I want to run it like I wanted to run like a wrestling practice originally, yeah. right? Hard two rounds, two hours, like hard like live live drilling rounds. Um, you know, high roll, like maybe aim for like seven, 10 minute rounds, you know, after drilling. And I'm noticing that, you know, by the end, people, oh, my knee hurts, my shoulder hurts. And it's difficult balance to find because you never know, like, why is your shoulder hurts at the end of practice? A, because it's been aggravated from all the rolling, could be. Yeah. Or B, because you're just being lazy, <laughs> right? And it's, it's difficult because you, you have to find that balance between keeping your athletes healthy, but also pushing them. You know, and some people are like, they'll push through the injury. And those, you almost have to tell them yes. to slow down because they'll keep going. Others, like every single time they get tired, that, that old injury all of a sudden starts bothering them. And like, are you full of it? You know, and you know, it's a very difficult balance to, 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 to find, but a lot of it has to do with like exactly that, just people skills, like social skills, being able to identify someone when they're full of it and knowing how hard to push someone without pushing that threshold. Like with Felipe, there were days, you know, preparing for the Europeans where he was asking me to stop. And it's the first time I've trained Felipe. I've never trained him before. So yeah. it's like, I don't know where that, I'm discovering that as we go. Yeah, yeah, where that boundary like, is. Where that boundary is. Like, I should call Kavaka a few times. Like, Kavaka, where is it? And then Kavaka gave me, like, this is how he is, right? Yeah. And, okay, so that's how he is. But even so, now, even if you know your students individually very well, that creates another problem. You're coaching a group. Are you going to have a class for every single individual? Because that's a private. Yeah. You know, because I'm training a group of 20 people. Like, I, it's, it's a lot to juggle, man. Yeah, you know, when my brother and I first started off, we came from, like, a fight club mentality. Because the first school that we trained of, we went from wrestling to a very intense program, and then we joined a guy who was doing, essentially, fighting, right? And... He didn't cater to anybody. He's like, this is the, the program. Either you're tough enough or you're not. So when we started our school, it was the same way. And my brother was, the first thing someone would do when they go to the gym was spar, full contact. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> no headgear. Yeah. It was nuts. Right? But sure, people who survive that are tough. But you're, like we said, we're breaking a lot of people before yeah. they can even develop. And, you know, and those people... Yeah. And you might think, some people are like, oh, you know, if they couldn't survive that beginning part, they weren't worth training later. It's like, no, that's not true. You know, there's a lot of uh, diamonds in the rough that if you grow them right, they'll be better than everybody else. Yeah. But because of whatever their background, you need to raise them properly. So I think the, the first step in not running private lessons for everybody is making those groups. Like, one of the best things we did was when we opened up our introductory program. So we have our advanced program and the intermediate. Because now, like, okay, we can group them. And the group is going to be a lot closer together. You know, like, we have people, you know, our beginning program is not even ranked. You're not even a white belt. You're just, like, first, you know, six months of training. Yeah. And then you graduate into white belt. And then you move up the ladder that way. But, like, making those separations make it easier. Because, okay, people with less than six months of experience, chances are, can't you know, do stand-up fighting or anything like that. And we limit them so that we, one, protect them and grow them at a pace where they're able to adapt, mm-hmm. you know. And um, it, it, I think it's important. It is the balance. I know for myself, I would always train past my limits and I would get hurt more often than not because I always had that voice in the back of my head. It's like, oh, you're being a pussy. I know, I, I know. I was and like, and I'm, I'm like, oh, I'm no bitch. I'm gonna keep going. You yeah. know? I'm like, oh, crap. So, so here's the here's the here's the 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 the, the million dollar question: 
is Dan Gable right? Because I've heard of Dan Gable today backtracks and he goes, no, overtraining is not a myth. But at the same time, he is an Olympic gold medalist. Yeah. So, and because I've, I've had this conversation with students of mine where I tell them to rest and I tell them not to overtrain and I tell them like, you know, and then, and then they go like, there's probably, did you, did you do that? I'm like, oh, hell no. Like I was overtrained every day of my life. I'm like, well, you won, didn't you? I'm like, I don't know. Like, am I, I actually don't have a good answer to that question because it's a very difficult balance to strike. I think that it depends on your, your age, right? Yeah. And uh, I guess the progression of your, your skill set. I think if you're young and early in, you really want to push that throttle. It's hard to overtrain when you're young, right? I mean, I look back at the type of injuries I, were, I was training through when I was in wrestling, and it's ridiculous. Like, I'd be sidelined for a year. Like, if I had half the injuries I had back yeah. then. So I think you can push through it, and it's important that you do when you're younger because that's going to create that mental toughness. Mm. But at a certain point, you don't need to prove you're tough anymore. Right, and once you achieve this certain, it's like if I climbed Mount Everest, do I need to climb it every year to prove I can still yeah. climb it? Yeah. No, I done it once. I know I can do it. Right, so like I don't need to prove that to anybody anymore. Right, you know. So it's kind of like, have you ever done an absolute before? You know, yeah, I've done like thirty of them. I don't need to prove I could. Um, I can fight the big guys yeah. and keep doing it. You know, so I, I think it's that kind of thing. Like once you you've gone through a certain amount of trials we don't need to go overdrive all the time you know it's funny because that's exactly how i feel like i i feel like i don't have to climb mount everest every day like i've done that and sometimes i don't feel like doing it right sometimes i'll go to war with like philippe's gonna want to train with oh shit here we go you think it's fun going to war with him yeah. it's not man he's faster than me he's younger he's got he's stronger his grips don't break mine do you know like everything is is, is, is against me but, and then I, I'll, I'll tell myself, did I get soft? Did I lose my toughness? Or do I have absolutely nothing to prove? And I know that. And I know that my happiness depends only, how I feel about myself depends only on me and not how other people may look at me. Does that make sense? Yep, and I'm completely content with what I've done. I have no regrets. I have no, like, I don't have any... You know, there's no anger inside me because I, I would have won more. Everyone wants wish they would have won more. That's normal. Michael Phelps, ask him. Yeah, I wish I'd won more tournaments. Yeah. Of course, but you know, I completely content with the fact that I can't, I can't beat Philippe in practice. You know, I might give a good, a good role, but like he's better than me, and I have to accept that. Um, but like, it's there's a part of me that tells me there's that little voice right here being soft. You know, you're being, you're, you lost your toughness, you know, like you should never be quitting now. And I don't think the word is quitting, but every now and then, like you accept things, whereas before I would have never accepted them. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I get caught or if someone passes my guard, I'm like, okay, I accept it. But I used to not accept those things. So, but I think there really are phases, man. You just have to, it, get, it is what it is. You can't, there's no way you're going to be competitive your whole life. And it's just going to get worse as you get, there's nothing you can do about it. But ultimately... I think the, the trick is, like I discussed, we were just talking, is being happy with yourself. If you're content, what does it matter what other people think? Yeah. And, and it's an exercise of ego as well, right? I know, like, I've been doing a lot more lifting now. and I don't go to, uh, well, I do go to failure in pretty much everything I do, but it's controlled, hard, yeah. right? Like, I don't 
With squats is probably the one thing I'm not going to do the failure because uh, <laughs> you're not coming back up. <laughs> By the way, that's really good advice. Squats and deadlifts, I think PRs are useless if you're a fighter. They're just dangerous for the benefits you're going to get. Like stay away squats and deadlifts, stay away from PRs. That's my advice. Yeah. I mean, I, I've done them, but like very controlled. Like I'm, I go under what I know I could do. Yeah. Because I, I don't want to fail on the squat. I mean, because I just had knee surgery. I don't need to blow out my knees uh-huh. <laughs> or anything, you know? But like... You, you have to weigh the risk versus benefit, you know, for every situation. So, like, can you fail on the bicep curl? Yeah. What's going to happen? Okay. Yeah. No big deal. Uh, right? Pull up. Yeah. <laughs> you let go. <laughs> you let go, right? But, yeah, if you're failing, like, when you see the deep fails and people squatting and the oh, no. it's like, Jesus Christ. Like, I can't have one of those things happen. You know, so, like, it's the same thing when you're rolling, you know, get kind of arm bar, like, do you, are you going to eat that? What's going to happen? You're going to pop your elbow. You might tear your shoulder. You're going to have yeah. a lot of time off. Not worth it. Not worth right? it. You see, for me, chokes, I always, I always ate them. <laughs> what happens if I wake up, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also dangerous. It's not smart. I, yeah. I've had one of my guys who got choked so bad because he was getting head scissored and the guy couldn't see him. Yeah. And he was passed out for probably longer than 10 seconds. Yeah. And he had like a little mini stroke, lip froze up really like that for a week and he had like a joker smile i was like this. but they went back okay it went back yeah, okay so i have a, a student of mine like i'm not going to mention his yeah. name but he's, he's not training with me anymore but like i think he liked being put to sleep not because he got like i know people get turned on by that that's like a thing like a fetish i'm serious like <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, a whole underground like yeah. of people who, like get get off on you know getting choked out but like with him it was the attention because every time he woke up everyone would be on him he was like a very attention needy See, person yeah. And, you know, he would just get put to sleep. And everyone's so worried about him all of a sudden because he's asleep. So he'd get put to sleep almost every week. And I'm like, this kid's doing it on purpose. There's no way it's a coincidence that he's getting put to sleep. And then he actually put together, I I kid you not, this is real. It's on YouTube. If you look hard enough, you'll probably find it. He put a highlight reel of himself getting put to sleep at tournaments. Wow. He had a highlight reel he created of himself. And he's not not doing it as a joke. It was just like all... This yeah. is how hardcore I am. Yeah. I get put to sleep kind of thing, you know. I, but it's yeah. I, I've, <laughs> unfortunately, in training, I've been put to sleep a few times. But not because I'm like, oh, when you, let me see how far I can go with it. It's that I was fighting so hard that I didn't have, like tapping out was an option in my head. Yeah. Like, I got to escape. I got to escape. The one time I got put to sleep in competition was with Tarsus Humphreys in 2007. And it was double overtime. And uh, he hadn't scored points yet, and he had a rear naked choke on the back mount. And what was going through my head was how I'm going to win this match. It wasn't like yeah. I need a tie. And then I remember I woke up, and I'm like, oh, crap. Yeah, it takes you 10, 10 seconds to realize. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so I, I, I was looking yeah. at, the, at the lights, and like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> no, I remember there was one other time I, was, I got mad at myself yeah. because I think it was the second time I ever tapped. It was against Salo Hibero. I fought in the Arnold Classic, I think it was like in 2003. And I was losing, like, I think it was, like, 5-0. And I was just going desperate, trying to get a takedown. Shot a sloppy double, and he got me in a rear naked uh, choke. So also, also, the only submission I've been caught in, in competition. Was rear naked choke? Four times. And um, so that's a clue. <laughs> how to defeat Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, 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 instructional, how to defeat Dave at Avalon.com. Yeah. So he got me in the rear naked, and I remember I was fighting, fighting, I tapped. And afterwards, I was mad. I'm like, I should have went to sleep. I should have kept yeah. fighting, you know? Like, I, I gave up on myself. No. And then, no. and then 
I, I got sobered up by a match later on. Uh, two of the women were grappling, and one of them was in the guard and got caught in a guillotine. And he was holding it, holding it. I looked away, looked back, and suddenly there was a giant puddle underneath him. I was like, what the hell is that? Like someone threw a water bottle? And the girl in the bomb starts freaking out and pushing the girl out. She Pee. choked the girl unconscious, and then she pissed herself. So I'm like, you know what? Yeah. It, that makes a no, lot I, better than I, pissing I, yourself. I know a guy. I'm not going to mention his name. He's not known in the U.S., yeah. but he's known in Brazil. He shot himself on national television. Oof, yeah, that's how. They had like, like one of the few events in Brazil that was actually on TV, and he shat himself. Like, and you couldn't. In his defense, you couldn't tell on TV. It didn't get brown or anything, but the smell. Like people that were near him, yeah. like, oh shit, man. Yeah. So that's like it could be yeah tap. It could get really embarrassing. That's a highlight reel you don't want on your track record. Um, sure. right. I got put to sleep once. It was silly. I was a blue belt, maybe a white belt. Like the guy did that choke in Portuguese. They call it a masapão. I don't know what you call it in English, but the, he holds the collar and he pushes with one collar with one hand and he grabs the other collar with the other one. And he pushes his knuckles into your throat. Okay. Right. And I was I was in side control when he was doing that. And I'm like, there's no way I'm tapping. I, 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 it wasn't that I was trying to be tough or anything yeah. or being stubborn. It's just like, it's, it's dumb. It wasn't going to work, yeah. Next thing you know, same thing. I, I wake up and there's like eight, nine people, like, you know, a bunch of heads floating around me. I mean, it took me like 10, 15 seconds to get a clue of what had actually happened. That was, that was a weird thing. Like, you, it doesn't register right away. I'm like, okay. Oh, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in a, okay, I was caught in a choke. Oh, shit. You know? Yeah. But, yeah, definitely not healthy. So I think that's a good way to end it. Public service tap. announcement. Tap. Just tap. Don't piss yourself. Don't shat don't, yourself. Don't sh- <laughs> it's not worth it. Trust me. It. It's definitely not worth it. Um, guys, it's a pleasure. Hope you guys enjoyed. We were a little off track for the holidays. and then yeah. they, you, were, you were traveling. Where were you again? I was in Tahiti. How was it? Yeah, it was pretty nice. You got to swim with wild dolphins. That's a really? bucket list item off. It's pretty pretty amazing. Like as in like like touching them and everything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, it was in, we were like 60 feet deep just in the, in the blue. Yeah. And... It was like two dolphins came in, and there was a big group of divers. And they would go in between the divers and just let their, you would scratch their belly or the back. That's and, awesome. And they would, they would do it a few times because they would come up for air, come yeah. back, and then eventually get tired and swim off. Living so the life. Yeah, pretty, it was pretty badass. So All right. Let's item. Awesome. Well, good for you. And uh, yeah, I well, hope you guys enjoyed it, and we'll see you guys again next week. Okay. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. As always, feel free to like, leave a comment, uh, share it with a friend. Everything you can do to help spread the word and give us feedback, we're always really appreciative. You can check out the website, breakingtheguard.com, for the latest podcast. Or if you've missed any of our podcasts, you can go there. It also has links to all the different venues that we have. Our podcast on YouTube, on Podbean, the Google Play Store, iTunes, and pretty much everywhere you can get podcasts, you should be able to find us. If you don't see us on your favorite podcast app, let us know and we'll try to get on there. Thanks. A final word from one of our sponsors, which is the Front Headlock series. The Front Headlock series is my course I developed. Uh, it's been a while now, I think like six years ago, on the wrestling front headlock, which is pretty much the fundamental position you have to learn in wrestling. Now, there's a lot of ways to use it and you can go all over the place for different ways. I feel that I've crafted arguably one of the best ways of using this front headlock. Um, And I come from an MMA background, so I'm seeing it from a full self-defense situation or from an MMA fight, but it's also going to work in grappling just the same. 
I've used the setups and the takedowns from the front headlock series that you're seeing here, and one of my biggest wins against Roberto Cyborg Abreu. I was using one of my front headlocks. Uh, he had shot in, sprawled, caught him in a front headlock, and set a little trap for him as he was escaping the front headlock to line him up for a far knee block. Got it, and that was ended up being the winning takedown. So if you want to learn these types of setups and much more, you can go to frontheadlock.com. The front headlock series is currently on sale. Uh, I think it's just about like 40% off. So make sure you go ahead. It's available both in DVD and online streaming formats. Just go to frontheadlock.com to learn more.